if you are illegally in the country, should you be counted for the apportionment and redistricting of political power in the country? And the debate has been, well, we should, in fact, make the undocumented immigrants go home, right, and not keep them. And we should somehow fix our immigration laws to prevent the process in the first place. And then now we're having this debate about whether a citizenship question on the full count census would help in that process. We could be entering a very troublesome phase that will damage a set of numbers that we need to use for the next 10 years. There are many groups that are active that are calling in, at the state level groups that are concerned about services for communities, particularly low-income communities and communities of color, to have people register to do the census because they know that the resources are that important. This is the August 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Every 10 years, the federal government counts all the people residing in the country, whether they are documented or undocumented individuals. This task is written in the Constitution and has been successfully implemented since 1790. The next census will take place next year. The interviews in this pod were recorded before the Supreme Court had released its consequential decision about whether the Census Bureau is authorized to add a question about the citizenship of the respondent in the next census. But the decision has not entirely clarified what will happen next year and therefore Everything we discuss here remains relevant. I review what is the importance of the census for public health and what is at stake next year with my two guests, Margot Anderson, distinguished professor emerita at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and author of the authoritative social history of the American census, and Nancy Krieger, Professor of Social Epidemiology at the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences in the Harvard School of Public Health. Nancy Krieger wrote an historical essay about the census and public health in the August issue of the journal. At the end of the pod, I will also explain why this month Francis Jacobs' playing seems to be channeling Carlos Santana. I am Alfredo Moravia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH. I first wanted to ask Nancy Krieger, what are the specific implications of the census for public health? U.S. census data from the decennial census are used to create and draw the lines for congressional districts, to to count how many people should be represented in which states by how many congresspeople. And they're also used for allocation. There's always, there's over 300 different federal programs that use census counts to help guide their allocation of services, many of which are critical for public health, including Medicare or the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP. There's a lot of concerns about the ways in which this will be implemented 
and the ways in which a census undercount that is differentially geared to reducing the populations that would be counted in particular states, particularly on the West Coast and the East Coast, any area that's urban and has relatively high concentrations of immigration. And that will reduce political representation, clout, and also funding for public health services, among other things. I'm now reaching out to Margot Anderson. So this is a key element, you said, that the census is part of the Constitution, right? What? Yes, it is. How is this possible? <laughs> it, well, in the 18th century, it turns out that the problems of reconciling who the, as we call in the Constitution, we the people are, and how to allocate political representation among the states at that point, among the, the 13 colonies that had formed the United States, was a real problem in the sense that the 13 colonies had been separate entities negotiating or working with the British Crown, but had never actually created a, a governmental mechanism to share policies with one another. Obviously, once they rebelled and won the Revolutionary War, uh, they had to create a permanent government. And so the problems that they faced were, well, if we have a legislature, should little bitty Rhode Island uh, have the same power in that legislature as great big Virginia, because they, they were the largest and smallest states at the time. So they decided on a population count of an actual enumeration, as they called it, conducted every 10 years by the federal government to shift power as the population grew and migrated and changed and became more diverse and so forth. And so that's the Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3 of the U.S. Constitution. And, and did the system work? I mean, over the, the following uh, 200 years, uh, did it work or was it a, a permanent battle between the parties? Well, it, it's worked in the sense that we're about to take the 24th census and we've done it successfully uh, for 230 years now. And yet there have always been controversies and debates about whether we did it well, whether the count was accurate, whether the basic question of who, as they say, the people are, shouldn't be rethought. Um, after all, the original constitutional provision included both the three-fifths compromise, which discounted the slave population to 60% of the free population, and the provision that said Indians not taxed, in other words, Indians still in their tribal relationships weren't to be counted in the census at all. So we've actually debated um, who the people are, in fact, and that latter, those latter provisions led to the development of the race and ethnic statistics in the United States. But uh, if I'm thinking of next year's census, the 2020 mm -hmm. census, there's a huge battle. The Supreme Court mm -hmm. has to even intervene next week. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. was it always like that? It's taken different forms. Let me put it that way. I, the, from the most recent comparable example is the controversies over what was called the census undercount, which raged from about 1970 to 2000. In other words, the recognition that the census um, systematically undercounted certain populations, primarily urban minorities and the poor, and that those undercounts had both direct representational effects and when 
since we also now use the census to allocate federal funding for, to all sorts of things, it meant that jurisdictions that had undercounted populations who were shortchanged on their federal funding for a decade. Okay, there's a lot at stake for public health in the 2020 census. Still, the Census Bureau has been unable to convince that there was any need of a citizenship question. The rationale provided by the Census Bureau seems to have been, as Justice Roberts described it, contrived. But what are the risks for the people who are not legally authorized to live and work in the United States if they decide to fill the census form? Some states and uh, many community organizations, grassroots organizations, are going to uh, be very active to motivate undocumented uh, immigrants mm-hmm. to, to fill the form and, and to be part mm-hmm. of the census. What are the risks historically? I mean, do you have any example of bad consequences that may occur for people who fill the census but actually are not in a legal situation? The Bureau has very elaborate what are called disclosure rules that prevent inadvertent release of information. The public is you know, not necessarily trusting of that. And what we're also going to do in the next year is have a conversation about, okay, even if we ask citizenship, what happens to the data? How do we publish it? How do we use it? How do we, how do we assure people that it won't be transferred back to ICE for administrative procedures for, uh, on particular immigrants? You know, by and large, they've done a pretty good job of that, but there are, Examples historic, most of them are quite old right now, where standards were ambiguous. And this is well known among technical people. So, for example, in the 1920s, the Labor Department got information from the census on children's age and location to prosecute employers who were violating child labor laws. Certainly, we know that undocumented immigrants have been in the census all along. Right. So we know that they're there because we have estimates of the undocumented population in from the census. It's basically a residual methodology. So we know that they've been there before. The debate that is taking place now is the cost of not answering. In other words, you only do this once a decade. And so in addition to the – this is a kind of uh, interesting philosophical problem. If one doesn't fill out the form – one is invisible for a decade. So a child that doesn't show up in the form, the school system doesn't necessarily get funding for that child for a decade. So that's the question that we are going to grapple with and all the stakeholder groups are going to grapple with, which is how to approach this question. I don't think we have an answer yet because the fear and the distrust are very, very real. But the issue on the other side of what was what is what often called is called stand up and be counted is equally important for these communities and so i've heard the advocates for the communities argue you know we have to figure out a way to make this make people literally stand up and be counted 
I next spoke with Nancy Krieger about the role of public health in the endeavor of having people stand up and be counted. Is it the public health responsibility to convince people to fill in the questionnaire anyway, even though there may be risk associated with it? There are two things to say in response to this question. One is that it's really important to remember that census data are meant, are supposed to be 100% confidential for decades. It's literally 60 years after the census is filled and they should not be shared with any agency or entity within the U.S. government. The big violation that happened of this was during World War II when census data were wrongly taken for the Japanese Americans to round them up to put them in internment camps. This is something that the U.S. government finally a few years ago formally apologized for. They were wrong. It's the Corbett-Sill case, and the Supreme Court has also said that it's one of the egregious decisions that it's made. So it's important to be able to reassure people that the data are supposed to be confidential. Now, in the present day and age, that may be hard to believe, but that is the framework. Secondly, there are many groups that are active that are uh, calling in, at the state level, groups that are concerned about services for communities, particularly low-income communities and communities of color, to have people register to do the census because they know that the resources are that important and that there needs to be a political response, which is separate from that, of filling out the census to protecting immigrant rights and working to have a better immigration policy in this country that deals with the question of people who are undocumented. Finally, I asked Margot Anderson what she thought was the main issue with the citizenship question, and if the census could be repeated if it failed. Especially since, even if the citizenship question is excluded, the current political climate might discourage participation. The real issue on the citizenship question is that we haven't tested it. We, the way, because the census is, the decennial census only takes place once every 10 years, it's very expensive. You don't want to do anything that will, you know, have you flying blind and not understand how the American population is likely to respond. After all, we rely now on either a mail or a voluntary Internet response or a phone response. We don't do what we did really in, down until 1970, which is send humans or enumerators to every single residential address of the country. We hope that people will respond on their own. We've never tested this to find out. We do know that there is enormous fear in immigrant communities right now over the action on DACA, on deportations, and so forth. And, and we don't know how those that will interact with people's capacity or willingness to respond to the census. So the issue really is and that has created the controversy uh, is you didn't test it. You didn't put it on the what, what is called the dress rehearsal or the end-to-end -end test in Rhode Island in 2018. 
But so if next year we conclude that the census has been a failure, that it's a huge undercount <laughs> uh, and uh, the undercount is uh, not uniformly distributed over the country mm-hmm. and things like that, could we decide, I, when I say we, could Congress decide to redo the census in 2025? That's a good question. I don't think we know the answer to that yet because we haven't confronted this kind of an issue yet. I mean, that's why the issue right now is so complex. Let me add one more point, which is the census. When I talk about the census, I always sort of say it's a rare, repeated and unobtrusive event, which means that most for most Americans, we don't remember the last time or the time before that. People all tell me repeatedly that they never filled out a census form. They forget. And if I say, where were you on April 1st, 2010, they give you a blank stare. If I say, where were you on September 11th, 2001, everybody knows. Of course. The effect of that is that we have to remember every decade what the census is and why we do it and who's responsible for deciding how and when we do it and so forth. We're having that debate now. And my sense is that we will continue to have that debate because of this citizenship controversy through next year, through the counting process, and when we see the results. And so I, I, that's a very unsatisfactory answer, but I think that's what's going that's likely the case because lots of, uh, lots of people, including the members of Congress and, and government officials, haven't really sort of grappled with the, the question that you're asking yet. They will, but they have not yet. There remain many uncertainties about what will happen with the census 2020. The Supreme Court has forbidden the introduction of the question on citizenship and the administration has dropped the question from the census. However, for Americans who want to maximize the accuracy of the 2020 census, the situation remains a double-edged sword or a catch-22. On one hand, it is the best interest of everyone in a state to have a universal participation in the census, because it will determine the political influence of that state in the House, and the volume of federal funds that will go into health care, education, and other public health and social services. This is true for undocumented people, too. If they don't fill the census form, they don't exist. They won't get federal subsidies and the state, most likely to defend their rights, won't be adequately represented. This is the meaning of the campaigns aiming at having people stand up and be counted. On the other hand, no one can guarantee to the undocumented that there is a zero risk in their participation. The current administration has made of illegal emigration a major theme of its conservative profile, and 2020 will be a presidential election year. Risk is small because historically the confidentiality of the information has been protected, but there have been breaches. 
Some states and community and grassroots organizations have opted to fight the fears and mobilize everyone on their territories to fill the form. Presidential candidates can help in explaining what they will do to protect the undocumented persons in the United States with respect to the census and beyond. A final note, it is very likely that it is constitutional to repeat a census more often than once every 10 years. The issue was debated in the House in the 1930s during the Great Depression. In the worst-case scenario, if the 2020 census fails, the next administration may be able to repeat it in 2025, for example. I am grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Reading the pieces about the census, Francis Jacob was inspired by the fact that they featured Mexicans predominantly. He told me Carlos Santana had a tremendous influence on my generation of guitar players. His Latino sound obtained a seat among the biggest superstars as early as the 60s and early 70s. Quite an amazing feat. This month's music is my modest tribute to him and his achievement. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on Android or iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or on any other podcast app. Also, this month, we are testing a new feature of the podcast. A full transcript of the podcast is available on the AJPH website for persons with hearing disabilities. We hope to make this a standard feature of the AJPH podcast. That's it. Thank you for listening.